The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by Hash House of Go-Go, the law firm of Hutchison & Stephan, Brew City Brand Apparel, TheFoodConnectionLV.com, and by Mr. Antenna. It's The Fake Show with Jim Tofty. Music from the Zombies, who formed in 1962, and they had many hits as part of the British invasion, including She's Not There, Tell Her No, and Time of the Season, which was on their 1968 masterpiece, Odyssey and Oracle. But much like Brian Wilson's masterpiece Pet Sounds, Odyssey didn't make much of a splash initially. In fact, the band had broken up before its release. All of these years later, fans have come to realize the album for what it is, which is one of the greatest ever. The voice of the zombies is Colin Blundstone, who is kind enough to join us on The Fake Show right now from Los Angeles. Hello. Colin, this is Jim Tofty in Las Vegas. How are you this morning? Hi, Jim. I'm fine. Thanks very much. Very well. How about you? Very good. Thank you. And and uh, we're all looking forward to you coming to Las Vegas. I'm wondering, is it still a thrill to be out on the road and doing it after all these years? Oh, absolutely. Um, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't a thrill. I mean... In many ways, it's exactly the same every time you walk on stage, even if you've been doing it for years and years. There's always that excitement before and especially during a show. And I have to say that I'm a, I'm a big fan, too, of your solo material, Say You Don't Mind and I Don't Believe in Miracles, the one-year LP. Really, really great stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I know that you've heard this uh, many times that the Zombies album Odyssey and Oracle is a masterpiece. I can listen to this over and over many times. In fact, I think I'm on my third vinyl LP. Never get tired of it. To me, it's like Revolver or Pet Sounds. It, it's just as new today as it was then. Oh, that's brilliant. It's, uh, it's so heartening, you know. Um, at the time, it, it was incredibly disappointing that when it was released it didn't really create uh, a lot of interest. And certainly, commercially, it wasn't successful. And so it's been really exciting to see the interest that has accumulated over the years. It's, I think it's a bit of a phenomenon, that album, because no one's been promoting it, no one's been marketing it. It's just word of mouth that it's established itself as you know, a very interesting piece of work over the years. And I can't think of many other albums that have done that. I compare it to, I guess, in terms of Brian Wilson and the Smile LP, when he finally kind of, they kind of finally got that organized and people were anxious to hear that live, I suppose. Yes, I suppose it has got its similarities, hasn't it? Absolutely. As the story goes, and people are very familiar with it, you, know, you broke up before it was released. Truly miraculous to see you guys perform Odyssey and Oracle live for the first time just a couple of years ago. Well, I, you know, it was very exciting for us to have the opportunity to do that. Um, we never performed it at the time. Um, all our memories are a little bit faded about 1967 now, but we may have done one or two of the songs once or twice on stage but otherwise you know in general we didn't play any of those songs live so it's been really interesting for us because really we have to go back to basics and relearn the songs that we recorded all those years ago and then we get the opportunity to play with our old bandmates with chris white and hugh grundy sadly paul atkinson has passed away he's no longer with us but um we get the opportunity to play with them and it's quite an emotional experience especially when we play the first few dates on a tour it uh, you feel yourself being transported back to those heady 60 days uh, those 60s 
days, you know, and uh, it, it is quite an emotional experience playing the album. I think, in actual fact, we're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Odyssey and Oracle being released next year. It's, it was released in 1967 in the UK. It was a little bit later in America. So we're going to do some dates, and there'll be some in America next year. But I think that will be it. I don't think we will ever play it again after that. It's not something that we want to keep returning to. It's, um, it's because it's a special anniversary that we've decided to do it. Do you think that, Colin, at the time, maybe music was changing? We Suddenly we had Jimi Hendrix and, and Cream, and musical tastes might have turned the corner. Yes, I think they were changing. And um, in some ways, a little bit unfortunately for us, when it came out in 67 in the UK, it was still very much a singles-orientated market. And when we released the first single from the album and it didn't do anything, the general feeling was that, you know, perhaps it's time to move on and, and get involved in other projects. It was, it was an, we all agreed, you know, it was a, there was no animosity in it. We just felt it was time to move on. But at that time, with the artists like that, that you're mentioning, the whole business was moving towards albums. And that perhaps was the main strength of Odyssey and Oracle, that it really holds together as an album. Although eventually it did have a big hit single on it at uh, the time of the season. I think it was the fourth single released in America. The real strength of the, of the piece is that it holds together as an album. And perhaps if we stayed together and seen the music industry change, where albums become predominantly important, um, the band might have been able to uh, might have been able to continue. And you know, so many great stories about that album. One of which was that as you guys were walking into Abbey Road Studios to record this, the Beatles were basically wrapping up Sgt. Pepper at the time. It's absolutely true. We were the next band in, um, and I mean, one of the things is that uh, John Lennon had left a Mellotron behind in Studio Three. And Rod just jumped on that Mellotron. <laughs> 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 and if you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it's all Mellotron. It would have been a totally different album if John hadn't left that instrument behind. But we were picking up, uh, you know, uh, tambourines and maracas and goodness knows what else that were laying around on the floor. And in, in some senses, I did feel a sort of a bit of a connection with them, really. I mean, we were all huge Beatles fans. Sure. We didn't see them. They left a few days before us. We didn't actually see them. But in a way, it, it was a nice thought to have that there was a kind of a connection um, in that they'd left some of their instruments behind. And of course, we were using exactly the same engineers that they used, uh, Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince, who were two of the finest recording engineers in the world. So we were really fortunate to be in Abbey Road at that time working with those engineers. I could see, listening to your library through the years when I was a kid, the writing continued to grow and mature, didn't it? It did. I think that right at that moment, Odyssey and Oracle, Rod, and especially Chris, uh, was going through a really hot period. I think Rod was quite a mature writer right from the beginning, from 1964. Um, but Chris was a good writer, he's a fine writer, but he was really learning his craft from 64 to 67, and suddenly in 67, he actually wrote more songs on Odyssey and Oracle than Rod did. And it, it seemed he had suddenly become a very accomplished songwriter. And he went on over the next few years because uh, he also was, well, they were both the, the main writers for Argent, a lot, along with um, Russ Ballard. 
and they just went through a really hot writing period from around 67 to 74 or something like that. We were so lucky. I think that was one of the main strengths of the Zombies was to have two prolific, wonderful writers in the band and Chris White and Rod Argent. I've spoken to uh, quite a few British musicians over the years, Colin, and, and they always say that it was very important for them to get that first hit in America. Was that the case with you guys? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that, well, I mean, the world looks to America and the American charts, and we certainly did, because for us, rock and roll started in America. All the greats, Chuck Berry, Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard... These were the people that got us playing rock and roll. And so our heroes were always American musicians. And I think that it's every British musician's aim is to one day go and play in America. And it's a very thrilling experience to come to America every time we come, but especially the first time. But also slightly intimidating. Every British person would acknowledge this is where rock and roll started. And you have so many fine musicians over here. But that was just a period in the mid-60s where as you call it, the British invasion happened. And it was a, <laughs> um, a little bit of a turnaround. And I often felt, I know that a lot of the songs we recorded were self-written, but um, in our show, we would play a lot of rhythm and blues classics. And I, I almost wanted to have an aside with the audience, you know, if they were enjoying what we were doing and, and sort of say, you know, we're playing American music here. This is your music. Yeah. And I felt a little bit guilty. And I'd be quite open about that. I mean, we weren't trying to in any way take over <laughs> American rhythm and blues we were, we were we were fans you know and we were playing it because we loved it assuming you went through the same thing where could you even hear what you were playing at the time were you getting the same reaction as all the other bands of the day oh, that, that, that was a bit of a challenge yeah. Yeah. It, it was very very noisy and of course amplification wasn't like it is now yeah it did get a bit difficult at times because uh, audiences were incredibly enthusiastic and probably more so in America than anywhere else. You know, you had such a big hit initially with She's Not There. In some ways, does it work against you to have a hit right out of the box before, you know, you've you've even had time to develop? You guys yeah, were so young. Thought, isn't it? I've thought about it many times and all I would say is that of course you have to enjoy and be grateful for any success that you have at any time in your career. But... If you have a choice, I think it's better to get the real breakthrough singles a little bit later in your career because we were we were 18 when we recorded She's Not There. Wow. We were totally naive with regards to the music business. And of course, you know, to some degree, there was a degree of exploitation going on. It was very rife in the business in those days. And we realized that in later years, it's easy to see it now in hindsight. But I think that... If we'd have been on the road for a couple of years before we had our success, I think everything could have been very different because we would have known, we would have understood more of how the music business works. But as I said at the beginning, you've got to be extremely grateful and thankful for any success that you get and accept it whenever it comes, of course. As far as the Beatles, they had played for, I don't know how many years it was in Hamburg, so they were very polished by the time they came over here and did the Ed Sullivan show. Sure. I, I think they've been together for a couple of years or something like that, and they'd been to Germany, hadn't they, and played in these clubs where you played 
all night, you know. Right. Like, you got them really, really tight. And with the Zombies, we'd won a big rock competition in the spring of 1964. And I think that that helped to get us a recording contract with Decca and also helped us to believe that perhaps there was a way forward for us as professional musicians. We, we all wanted to be professional musicians. It was just that we weren't sure that there was a place for us but when we won that competition we decided to become a professional band it wasn't when she's not there was a hit that happened after we decided to become a professional band so if she's not there had not been a hit we bought an old beaten up truck we were going to go out and get gigs i don't think we really quite knew where we were going to get the gigs from right. but it, it sort of the success overtook the plan that we had we were just going to go out on the road and and try to learn our craft and hopefully eventually become successful. But it, it happened the other way around. So it, that wasn't part of the plan that she's not there. And it's only a chance thing. Our producer, uh, who again we met by chance, was a guy called Ken Jones. And he was talking to us a couple of weeks before the first session we ever had. And he just said, as an aside, you know, you could always write something for this first session. We were going to do, like, rhythm and blues classics. And Rod really took that to heart, and so did Chris. And they went away and both wrote a song. I, I didn't know either of them could write songs. And two days later, Rod came back and he got She's Not There. And we knew it was a special song, and that changed everything. Wow. Chris wrote the song, Could You Make Me Feel Good, which was the B-side of the first single. And so then we realized we'd got prolific, sophisticated writers in the band. I didn't realize that until then. By the way, would just well, a little bit off topic, but one of my favorite songs is Whenever You're Ready. I, I just love that song. I think it's a great song. I, it's one of the ones, I think it's a better song than it is a record. When I, when I listen to it, we had a little bit of a problem in the studio sometimes that we didn't get the most out of the songs when it came to recording. There could be many reasons for that, and we, we, we talk about it sometimes even now. But that's a pretty good example, I think, of where I think the song is better than the record. I have to say that nearly everything we recorded and has been issued as a record um, as it happens. Maybe that's not always the case. <laughs> I know our first album was recorded very, very quickly. And we were in a difficult situation with our first album because Rod and Chris had just started out as writers, so they didn't have a backlog of songs. They were desperately trying to write, and Decca put the pressure on us to record. So we've got a mixture of songs that were written quite quickly by Rod and Chris, and one or two classic R&B tunes, and the whole thing was recorded probably in about two or three evenings in Decca Studios, recorded incredibly quickly. So it's a little bit of a mishmash, our first album. Luckily, the second album, Odyssey and Oracle, it's the first time we went into the studio without an outside producer. In effect, probably Rod and Chris were producing it, but I think the credit, the production credit on the album, in America anyway, is to the Zombies. So there wasn't an outside producer. Interesting. And so we could do things the way we wanted to do it rather than be dictated to. Through the years, you hear some singers' voices fade for various reasons. Your voice remains great, and, uh, and I'm talking about even recent material. What do you do to maintain that? Because not everyone has that. Well, I did. I studied with a singing coach in London called Ian Adam, and um, he helped train mostly West End which would be like um, Broadway stars, you know? People who have to sing every night in musicals. Right. So they would be singing 
five or six times a week for long periods. And he helped to make their voices strong and hopefully more accurate. Now, I only studied with him for a short period of time, but he taught me a little bit about singing technique, and he also gave me a series of singing exercises. And if I do those exercises, usually my voice will hold up to touring and uh, you know the rigors of traveling and everything that goes with it. So that has really helped me. Otherwise, I mean, in the early records, I had no musical uh, background at all. I joined the band as a rhythm guitarist, and, and Rod was going to be the lead singer. Right. But at our first rehearsal, we were just playing an instrumental, and so as the lead singer, Rod wasn't doing anything. This was our very first rehearsal. And he went over to a broken down old piano in the corner when we had a coffee break. And he played Nut Rocker by Bee Bumble and the Stingers. It's a, a, wow. a classical piece that's yeah. been sort of rocked up. And it sounded incredible. And I said to him, Roy, you've got to play keyboards in the band. That's phenomenal. But he was very keen for it to be a rock band. He wanted it to be guitars. And then later in that rehearsal, he just heard me singing just to myself. I was singing Ricky Nelson's song. And he said to me, I tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboards. And that's how the band came together. It's a lot of chance in this band. Just yes. Things happened. It wasn't planned that I would be the singer. And certainly a lot of magic and chemistry with you and Rod Argent. There is a sort of a chemistry. I mean, first of all, we've grown up together musically, but just as friends, we've grown up together. And Rob will often say that he always writes consciously or subconsciously with my voice in mind when you write and he learned to write songs writing for my voice and i learned to sing singing rod songs because when rod writes a new song we'll always discuss the phrasing and the interpretation in depth before we play it to the band so to a large extent we've learned our craft together what do you think has sparked people's interests these last few years because when crowds see, come to see you they are they just totally embrace you and they're so happy to see you guys and hear you well it's an interesting thought isn't it i i think We've been quite, well, we've been very pleasantly surprised by the way things have evolved because it was never our intention to reform the zombies. We originally got together to perform six concerts in 1999 under the name of Colin Blunson and Rod Argent. I don't even think we were playing many zombie tunes. We've both got solo careers in the UK and um, we didn't realize that there was so much worldwide interest in the zombies. We honestly didn't. And as we played and came to America and went to the Far East and through Europe, people kept asking for zombie tunes. And we kept adding them to the show. <laughs> and suddenly we realized we're playing a zombie show here. We talked it through with Chris White and Hugh Grundy, the other original members, and said, look, we think it's time. And this was about seven years after we got back together again. We think it's time to call this show The Zombies because we're playing zombie tunes. And they, they thought it was a great idea. So it's something that's evolved very naturally. And of course, we're thrilled and heartened by the reaction that we get when we go out and play. And to some extent, the excitement is intensified because it's so unexpected. We weren't expecting to be performing as a zombies, and we weren't expecting to get this kind of response. And I'm glad for it. I'm, I'm always happy, too, when artists, younger artists of today, are asked about their influences, and many, not the least of which is Paul Weller, say that Odyssey and Oracle, that album, really is what got them started in the music business. Well, I find it very heartening as well. 
Um, but there have been many, um, Tom Petty and Dave Grohl, obviously Paul Weller, and younger uh, people who are just coming into the business now who cite us as an influence. And it's incredibly rewarding to hear that. I think that peer group acceptance is the greatest greatest reward that you can get as a musician, really. It's, it's something that I find very encouraging. If ever I'm sitting at home and wondering, how am I going to get out on the road again at the this <laughs> autumn of my career? How am I ever going to do it again? Then when I hear or think about something like that, then that encourages me to get out there and uh, yeah, it gives me the energy to get back out on the road. Yeah, it's almost like you have this sales force out there working for you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's wonderful, yeah. You know, and I have to say, too, the uh, the Zombies' most recent album, Still Got That Hunger, is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I mean, we really, really enjoyed that. You know, it actually got into the top, the Billboard Top 100, So, um, and they phoned us and said, do you realize that that's the first time the Zombies have got back into the Billboard Top 100 in 50 years because wow. obviously we haven't really been around. Um, <laughs> so that was our first hit album in 50 years, um, which we thought was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And, you know, we recorded it in many respects in the same way as recorded Odyssey and Oracle because we had a very small budget for uh, Odyssey and Oracle. We were recording in Abbey Road, which is a very expensive studio. So we rehearsed extensively before we went into the studio so that the arrangements and the keys were all set for the songs. We were just looking for the performance when we went into the studio. And we thought it would be great to do the same thing on Still Got That Hunger, and we did. We rehearsed extensively before we went into the studio. And once again, we were just looking for the performance. We, we knew what we were going to play. We worked with a wonderful producer called Chris Potter, who's worked with The Verve and The Stones and nice. Richard Ashcroft um, and many other great artists. And he took so much of the responsibility and organization off our shoulders and just took care of everything. And we just went in and played. And to a large extent, we played live. And I put down vocals as guide vocals so I was singing live with them, and they played the heart, the um, played the solos live as well. And we kept them. We kept the solos, and we kept my vocals. So, in some respects, we were in wonderful studios, but it's almost like a live album that was recorded in a in a studio environment because we were playing live. And we really enjoyed it as well. In some ways, it's easier to record like that. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, and the artwork looks similar. Is that That's not by any chance the same artist who did Odyssey and Oracle. Same artist, yeah. Wow. His name's Terry Quirk, Q-U-I-R-K. And um, he's someone that went to the same school as me and actually shared a flat with Rod Argent and Chris White at one time. And we thought it'd be a great idea to have him do the cover. So there is a relationship between this cover and Odyssey and Oracle. It's the same artist and the same sort of concept. Oh, it's beautiful, and it really, really lends itself to this album. Colin Blundstone and the Zombies. Can't tell you how much of a thrill this has been, Colin. I really thank you for spending time with me today. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it, too. Thank you, Colin. Okay, all the very best. If you have a chance, make sure that you get out and see the Zombies as they tour across the United States. They're not only going to play Zombies hits, but also Colin's solo material and the hits of Argent going to be a great show and it's amazing how it just organically evolved into people wanting to hear more and more of the zombies well that's it for this episode of the fake show thanks for stopping by i'm jim tofty and i will see you next time take the fake show with you at thefakeshow.com soundcloud and at itunes <laughs>